Right, everybody, I'd like to take your left hand and stick it out like this here. All right, put your left hand like this. We're going to clap and we're going to sing together this morning. Uh, this is what we're going to do. Uh, some of you are well familiar with this. You're going to uh, uh, hit, sounds so bad, but that's what you're going to do. You're going to hit the person's hand next to you, their left hand that's sitting out, your right leg, your left leg, the bottom of your hand, and you're going to come down on your hand twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, Good. All right. That's not too bad. Okay. We're going to sing here in a minute as we get going. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. There is only one God. There is only one King. There is only one body. That is why we sing. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. Very good. All right. Not too bad. Somebody was rushing a little bit, a little bit too much caffeine, I think, this morning. That's all right. <coughs> I'm going to read you a list, and I want you to see how long it takes you to figure out what this list has in common. I don't think it will take you that long. Here's the beginning of it. L.A. Law, Perry Mason. Some of you already figured it out. The Defenders. Law and Order, The Practice, Allie McBeal, Rumpel of the Bailey, Boston Legal, Damages. I'm sure most of you know what these are. This is the list, according to the American Bar Association Journal, of the top ten greatest legal TV shows. Uh, this is a staple, of course, of American television, isn't it? Uh, shows about lawyers and judges. Uh, if you add to that shows about doctors and police officers and detectives, you would have, you can identify the lineup of most evenings in the uh, major networks. Uh, you probably have a favorite among this, this list of legal shows. What they need to do is they need to make a show about a doctor who practices law on the side, and it would be perfect. Maybe everything. Now, why is it that we watch, like to watch legal dramas? What, what attracts us about them? Uh, perhaps it's because the courtroom is the place where the drama of life is reduced to bare facts and then a verdict, a final decision is made. Justice is dispensed. Decisions are, are handed down. Um, court cases are where complicated human drama Things that you're all aware of and you experience, complex things having to do with envy and manipulation and dishonesty and hatred, all those things are reduced to just basic themes and they lead to a conclusion. 
It, it's satisfying, isn't it? There's a certain amount of satisfaction that comes when you get presented with a slice of life and then it comes to an end. And, and most of the time, the shows are very carefully scripted so that the good guy wins or the innocent person goes free. According to one source that I read, Perry Mason only lost one case ever in his career. Huh. The show uh, unfolds so that you're on the side of justice and when the gavel bangs, you say, yes, that's right, that's what's supposed to happen. Life never works that way, does it? Does a gavel bang ever bring the end to some of the the turmoil and disagreements and the struggles that that take people into courtrooms in the first place? For several months, we have been studying a book of the Bible where human beings stand not before a justice of the peace, but before the God of the universe. And it is a book that's that's strange to us, and it's a bloody book, isn't it? It's a book that challenges some of our ideas about what's right and what's wrong, who's guilty and who's not guilty, and what that means. As serious as it is to stand before a judge in a court of law, it is infinitely more serious to stand before the God of the universe. There's never been a case before a judge or a king that is more important than the question of how unholy people live in the presence of holy God. That's one of the great questions that the book of Leviticus asks us. Uh, the other challenge, or one of the other challenges of reading this book, is the challenge of, of figuring out uh, this, this world in Leviticus, it's so far removed from us. There's so many strange cultures and customs, clothing and practices, um, traditions that, that the original readers uh, knew very well, uh, but we don't. There's some details. There's a lot of details in the book of Leviticus, but there's things that we just don't know, and it, it's foreign to us. E- even though greater than the distance between us and the people who first received this book mm, 3,500 years ago uh, is the distance, though, between us and the God who spoke these words originally. The key word in the book of Leviticus, of course, is the word holy, which we never use in a a positive sense. Have you ever thought of somebody, somebody you really admire, someone who is just a fine person, and you thought uh, about them, wow, that that man is really holy. I I bet you didn't say that. You use some other word. In fact, the only time we really use the word holy except to describe God is when we talk about someone being holier than thou which is never a compliment, isn't it? Uh, it, it, If you're holier than thou, than somebody else, you're self-righteous, you're judgmental, you're uh, proud. At the the center of it, the word holy means distinct, unique, uh, different. God is uniquely excellent in every positive category that you can imagine. He is uniquely distinct in wisdom, in power, in beauty, in goodness. Think about with it for a minute. Think with me for a minute about the strongest person you know. Who is the toughest, the hardest person you know? And of course, without question, everyone here is thinking of one person, Chuck Norris. Um, there is an industry devoted to describing how tough Chuck Norris is. For example, Chuck Norris has a grizzly bear carpet in his room. The bear is not dead, it's just afraid to move. (laughs) 
When Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, he had three missed calls from Chuck Norris. Uh, Chuck Norris never makes, never calls the wrong number. You just answer the wrong phone. Chuck Norris is strong. He's tough. He doesn't make mistakes. But God is stronger than Chuck Norris. Or think about the wisest person that you know. Who is it that you always go to for good advice? The person that you talk to who always knows and, and can always help you sort through things. It's a wise person. God is wiser than that person. What about the most beautiful person you know? Every year, People Magazine right, does an issue devoted to the 50 most beautiful people in the world. God surpasses every single one of them infinitely in beauty. Or the kindest person you know. Our congregation is filled with, with a number of warm and sensitive and caring people. Aren't, aren't there people you talk to in church that they just, they just have this ability to invite you in and, and talk to you by their posture and the words they use? They just emanate kindness. God is kinder than all of those people. And in the book of Leviticus, every paragraph, every custom, every law in this book is in some way devoted to showing people graphically, um, often in, in the context of their everyday experience, that God is holy. He is holy. I have on my bookshelf uh, a book with a robin egg blue paper cover. It stands out on my books. It stands out uh, not just for its cover, but also for its title. Here's what it's called. It's called The Torments of Hell, Jonathan Edwards on Eternal Damnation. Now, we don't talk very much like that in our culture. Uh, In our culture, this sounds odd and quaint and laughable, uh, holier than thou. Uh, Listen to a few lines from this, this paragraph. This is from a sermon called The Torments of Hell Are Exceedingly Great. Listen. Let it be considered, Edwards said, that God is infinitely great and that we are nothing and less than nothing before him. He fills heaven and earth with his presence and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. We are less than the least insect in His hands. He is a God of infinite highness and majesty. The mighty kings of the earth, they are but as little worms before Him. He is an almighty being. His strength is such that He created the world by the word of His power and He can shake it all. He can shake all the pieces if He pleases or turn it to nothing in a moment by a word speaking. How dreadful must the unmixed, unrestrained wrath of such a one be when it is poured out upon a worm. We are told that the wrath of a king is as the roaring of a lion. Kings, if they will execute wrath without mercy, are able to make men exceedingly miserable. They can inflict dismal torment, but what is this compared to the wrath of such a being as the God of the Bible? That's very different language than we're used to hearing, isn't it? This week I heard part of a sermon from a popular preacher who said, that God just wants you to be nice to other people. If you're just nice to other people, God will be kind to you too, because that's the way God works. You lift up somebody else, and God will lift you up too. It's vastly different language, isn't it? 
Jonathan Edwards was devoted to, to using every word, every paragraph, every rhetorical device he had to, to hammering into people. God is holy. God is holy. He is distinct. He is, he is great in power and in wisdom and in beauty and in goodness. And Edwards got that emphasis in part from the book of Leviticus that comes at that theme from so many different angles. Now, so far this has been a rather long introduction to our return to the book of Leviticus. And I want you all to make your way to Leviticus chapter 8 with me, if you would, please. If you haven't already, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Leviticus chapter 8. Now, Leviticus, we've been moving our way through this book. It's not, easy to fi- it's not hard to find. Excuse me. It is easy to find. It's the third book in the Bible. So just start there, Genesis, Exodus, uh, then Leviticus. And we're going to come to chapter 8. Now, uh, chapter 8, things begin to change. We have a major section here in the book. We move into the narrative section of the book of Leviticus. We've been doing laws about offerings and sacrifices. Now we move to a story. This is the narrative of the ordination of Aaron and his sons. This is a narrative section, and I hope it's not too bold to say this. It is not a very interesting story. Um, There's no uh, villain... There's no chase scene in this story. There's not uh, uh, any suspense. There's no mystery. There aren't really even many startling plot points. Basically what happens is God gives a command. It starts in Exodus 29. God gives a command to Moses and Moses obeys. Moses gives the command to Aaron and Aaron obeys. That's it. That's the whole story. In some ways, this is about as exciting as what happens when I ask my children what happened at school today. You know what answer I get. Nothing. Uh, it's a, a, a story that is to tell us about these priests and where they came from and why they're serving. Um, up to this point in time, in the book of Leviticus, we've learned about the sacrificial system the categories of blood offerings that must be offered to God um, so that, that God's presence will not, His holiness will not incinerate the people. If the sun moved into your neighborhood, you would need a lot to survive. Heat shields and a lot of sunscreen. A lot of sunscreen. God has moved in and these bloody offerings are the protectant against God's pervasive holiness. Now, somebody has to take these offerings and process these offerings that are brought. And that is what the priest does. The priest receives them on God's behalf and processes them in the temple. And here's the story of where the priests are dedicated. And we're not going to read through the whole chapter in detail, but I do want to read a couple of verses. Let's start at verse 8, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 8. Look what the text says. The Lord said to Moses... Bring Aaron and his sons, their garments, the anointing oil, the bowl for the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket containing bread made without yeast, and gather the entire assembly at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses said to the assembly, This is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Now, I'm struck by how this passage is a very public 
a very detailed ceremony. God has, he, he wanted the people to see, he wanted the people to gather together, and, and he wanted them to know, this is my plan, this is what I intend. You're going to see this, you're going to watch this. The people needed a representative who would go into God's presence on their behalf, and he wanted them to see the dedication and the commitment of that priest who would go. They had no role. The people are there, but they had no role other than to watch, which is what I want to invite you to do this morning. I want you to see what's happening. Listen, because God is going to teach us about worship. He's going to prepare us to be in His presence. And there are things that He wants you to see. He wants you in particular to notice, to understand, and to observe. Here are three things in particular to see in that courtyard. The first one is, God provides a way for the people to worship Him. God provides a way for the people to worship Him. Again, there's this pattern in this passage. God commands and Moses and Aaron and his sons obey. And I want you to notice here that God is the initiator. He is the one who provides. This, I think, makes the story of the Bible different from uh, it stands out among the religions of the world. Most religions focus our attention on human efforts to get in touch with the divine. Human beings trying to reach up to God. First, we define who God is. And then we find teachers and preachers and priests and leaders who can show us how to get, how to know this God through ritual, through meditation, through prayer, through some way. This is the story of most religions of the world. We're going to try to reach God. Now, if you took me outside in the parking lot after the service and asked me to dunk the basketball in the basketball hoop, uh, it would not happen. I would fall Maybe an inch or two short. <laughs> no. Uh, it is a physical impossibility for me to do that. Right? If I trained and I worked hard, I could get a little bit closer. But, but I, trust me, I, I try to follow the law, especially the law of gravity. So uh, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. Now, if I wanted, you know, I could, there is a way that I could dunk the, 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 the ball in the basket today. Uh, uh, I could take the ladder outside and, and from the ladder get up there and, and, and uh, put the ball in. Uh, I could park my car underneath the basket and stand on my car and, and dunk the basketball in the hoop. But I, I, I'm not going to make it. Most religions are efforts to get up there, to, to connect with God. In fact, this seems to be the default mode of the human heart we seem to be driven by the idea that it is possible for us, it's even preferable for us to try to earn God's approval, to try to be good enough, wise enough, holy enough, uh, pray enough, meditate enough, so that we get God's attention. So that when we die, God will maybe treat us kindly because we've, we've been good enough. We've been jumping hard enough. But this, this passage is about how God came down and how He provided a way for us to know Him. First through the sacrificial system, and now through a mediator, through a representative. Someone will have to advocate for us. God lives in this tabernacle, and there's no way because of His holiness and our unholiness that we can go in. I think most of the Israelites spent most of their time ritually unclean, unable to go into the tabernacle. They needed somebody to go in. 
And, and instead of being a passage here about how the people nominated and trained and equipped someone to try to appease God, the people didn't say, hey, Aaron, you're up, go. This instead was God who said, Aaron, come. He's the one for me. And all the people saw this. God provides a way. It's a mark of God's grace. It's, it's a theme that's repeated again and again in the Bible. Think about even how the Bible begins. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And, and what happens? They, they disobey God. And th- what they realize, huh, they're, they're ashamed. So they hide. What happens in the story? It's one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. God comes looking for them. Adam, where are you, Adam? He's, he's looking. He's the God who comes to find us. Well, think about these beautiful stories in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. There's three stories about three lost things. A lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And in all three stories, somebody is looking. God is telling us about His attitude toward us. He's seeking. For some of you, uh, this is part of your story, isn't it? You are, you are consciously aware of the fact that you are the product of God's initiation. God clearly came and found you. Some of you are more conscious of that than others. You are not looking for God, but in the course of troubles or through the, the words of a friend, God find, found you. And some of you can speak very clearly about that. God hunted me down and found me. Maybe I could be so bold as, as to suggest to you this morning that by your presence here, this is one of the ways that God is seeking you out, that He is calling you, telling you that it's possible for you to know Him. This is our mission as a church. Isn't it? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, we plead with people. God sent us to plead with people to be reconciled with Him. And that's, that's what we do as a church. We plead with people to be reconciled with God. And here in Leviticus chapter 8, God initiates. He provides the way to worship Him. Can you see that? If you were standing in the courtyard watching this process, would you get it that, that God is the one who graciously has, has told you how to come to Him? Through whom to come? There's something else that you should see in this passage. Here it is. The men God provides must pursue God's standards. The men God provides must pursue God's standards. That is, there is supposed to be a resemblance between the God the, and the representative. This man is to be holy. There is to be a separation that marks Aaron's life. And you can see that in three ways in the text. First, you can see it here by uh, the washing. Verse 6, Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. Um, this is a full-blown bath he gives them. He uh, uh, dunks them and washes them with water. Um, washing in the, in the Bible has to do with uh, it's a symbolic of spiritual cleansing. Sometimes you see that phrase in Scripture, a clean hands, clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. The two are they're supposed to go together. And by this symbolic washing here, uh, Moses and Aaron is making a statement about what sort of person Aaron is going to be, a spiritually cleansed person. And verses 7 and following here, Aaron gets his clothing on, this very elaborate dress of a high priest. 
We don't understand all the symbolism involved in this. There's more symbolism here than we understand. But I I want you to see just a a couple of things. Notice, first of all, here in uh, verse 9, it talks about Aaron's turban. Then he placed the turban on Aaron's head and set the gold plate, the sacred diadem, on the front of it as the Lord commanded Moses. The sacred diadem would be a piece of gold that would say holiness to the Lord or holy to the Lord on it. And it wrapped around Aaron's head. And wherever Aaron walked, there was this sign, I'm the high priest, I am holy to the Lord. The thing that's interesting, I think, about this clothing is that this clothing matched in weave and in color the tabernacle itself. There Aaron would stand, and, and he would stand in front of the tabernacle, and, and Aaron matched the tabernacle. Now think about it here, what would happen if I came to church next Sunday wearing a suit made out of that lovely maroon fabric hanging on the curtains? That would be quite the suit. Or, <laughs> even better, that lovely floral pattern in the fellowship hall. That would be a phenomenal outfit. I'm not asking for it, don't do that. I don't want anybody to be playing Maria Von Trapp this week, okay? I don't need any clothes made out of the curtains in the auditorium. Just saying, just saying. It would, it would, it would be unique, wouldn't it? I would, <laughs> for a number of reasons. I would be tied, it would, I would be evidently tied to this building. And there's an evident tie here between the priest and the tabernacle in the clothes that match the building. His clothing s- separates him out. Washing clothing, and then there is the anointing. Verses 10 through 13 are about the anointing. Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it, and so consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Uh, the Old Testament gives us the recipe for this anointing oil. It was, it was oil, uh, oil with spices mixed into it. Very, very, uh, a scented, heavily scented oil. Then he brought Aaron's sons forward, put tunics on them, tied sashes around them, and put headbands on them as the Lord commanded Moses. There's this anointing going on. This, it continues actually in, in verse 23. After they, they, they sacrifice one of the animals, look what happens in verse 23. Moses slaughtered the ram and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Uh, We've talked about how the sacrificial system was a messy, messy thing. Just imagine how this is. This is, this is bloody. It's smelly. It's um, violent. (laughs) Uh, one wonders what Aaron's wife said when he got home. Where have you been? What have you been doing? These stains are never coming out of his clothes. What happened to you? I'm sure Aaron's wife was in the crowd. Uh, a, a priest will hear what God says. He will obey what God says. He will walk on holy ground. That's what he does. There is to be a match between the priest and th- his task. There's to be a correspondence to the there. Uh, this is a theme that the Bible actually has uh, throughout the, the scriptures. Those who mediate for, for God, for the people, um, there's a correspondence. Those whom God appoints to lead are to embody the standards that God holds most dearly. 
And that's something that we don't ignore as a church. We can ignore as a church. Uh, the Board of Elders this year is memorizing 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is the qualifications for elders. Now, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, uh, not violent, but gentle, and the, the text continues. Uh, during our meetings, we sit down and, and we quote these verses to each other. And I have yet to meet with one of the other men and, and look across at him and have him say to me, I'm so glad I have all of these mastered. I mean, this list doesn't convict me at all because I got them down. Nobody said that to me. And, and that weighs on us. There is supposed to be a correspondence between the God we proclaim and the lives we lead. The elders in the church are the ones who are supposed to be setting the pace in these things for us. We strive for these things, but it is my failure and it's Aaron's failure that drive me to want you to see one more thing as we look into the courtyard here this morning. Look, I want you to see the men God provided fall short of God's standards. The men God provided fall short of God's standards. This, this passage here from verses 14 on focuses our attention on three different offerings. In verses 14 and following, he presents the sin offering or the purification offering. In verses 18 and following, he presents the ram for the burnt offering. And then in, in verse 22, he presents the, uh, the other ram for the ordination offering, which is another peace offering or another fellowship offering. Uh, in this passage here, it's interesting if you read this and compare this to others, Moses is acting like the priest and Aaron and his sons are acting like the worshipers. So Moses is doing the priestly job here. And what this passage teaches us, and everybody could see this, everybody in the courtyard could see and recognize, even the priests need a priest. The mediators between God and the Israelites need themselves a mediator. Think with me about this. This is not hard to figure out. Abraham, uh, uh, Aaron. Let's think about Aaron. How can Aaron represent others before God? Aaron needs representation before God. When the Israelites rebelled against God at the bottom of Mount Sinai and they made a golden calf to worship, Aaron was the chief sinner. He's the one who led them in building this, this idol. How is it possible that Aaron can represent them to God? Aaron himself needs a priest. We're going to talk about this a little bit uh, more when we get to chapter 10. But if the mediator needs a mediator, who is going to represent us? Who's going to mediate for the mediator? Who's then going to mediate for us? Can they really intercede? Can they really represent us? Everybody in that courtyard should have been thinking this. Huh. And the answer to the question is, can the mediator mediate for us if the mediator needs a mediator himself? The answer to the question is no, not permanently. This is the very point that the author of Hebrews speaks to us about Jesus Christ. Listen to what Hebrews 7, 27 and 28 say. I think it's written down your sheet if you want to look. It says, unlike the other high priests, he, that is Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints, this law, Leviticus, appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath, 
which God uttered, which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. As wonderful and gracious as this system in the book of Leviticus is, as as marvelous as it is that God has come down and told us how we may approach Him, it has a fatal flaw. And the fatal flaw is that every human being is fatally flawed. I'm pleased to serve as, as the pastor of this church, and we have good men who serve as elders, but we are all insufficient to this task to which God has called us. But the Son, oh, the Son who is the chief shepherd. Jesus Christ, He's perfect forever. And thus He's able to represent us perfectly. He is spiritually clean. He doesn't need to wash at all. He's spiritually clean. He is cut from the same cloth as God Himself. It's not just His outfit that matches God. It is He Himself. He is God in the flesh. He is full of the Holy Spirit. He is able to perfectly satisfy all of God's requirements. And as we remember when we take the Lord's Supper, He's not only our perfect priest, He's also our sacrifice. The one who died in our place for our sins. And we worship through Him. Brothers and sisters, you are not and can never be perfect enough to come before God. You have to remember this. Some of you, some of you live with this haunting feeling that somehow... When God wasn't looking, you snuck in. And someday, God's going to turn around and He's going to say, how did you get in here? I didn't mean for you to be in here. Out! You're not good enough to pray. You're not good enough to serve. You're not good enough to be in a growth group. And if anybody finds out what you're really like, they're going to kick you out. But, But no one is good enough. No one. You can't by trying, you can't by focusing enough, you can't by being good enough, do enough to please God. And if, you, if all you do is try, if all you do is try to find within yourself that little bit of righteousness that might just please God enough, you're going to be in agony. It's not there. There is only one person who is enough to represent us to God. And you come through him. If I ever go to court, I want Perry Mason to represent me. Maybe Ben Matlock. He'll do. Either of them will be fine. They will be skilled enough to do it. The problem is that before God's seat of justice, neither of them will do. Not a lawyer with a successful television show and a 10 million to one record. Only the son. Not the priest. Not the priest with the clothes and the anointing and the oil and the headband and the robes. Not the priest. For this, we must have the son. For this, we must have Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I am thankful to you for these uh, men and women here in this congregation. And we are grateful to you that you have provided a priest, a mediator who is sufficient for all of us. He is good enough, he is perfect enough to represent me before you. He's good enough to represent me and, and all of our elders, all the men this congregation is appointed to serve. He is sufficient enough to represent 
uh, everyone serving in, in the nursery this morning and everybody teaching children's church right now. He is sufficient for every single person sitting in each of these pews and in each of the chairs downstairs. God, I, I pray for those who are sitting here in this room who are afraid that they've just snuck in when you weren't looking. Who are, who are afraid that, that because of, of how they compare to somebody else or because of, of, of what they've done, they, 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 they're not good enough and you, you're going to figure it out some, sometime. God, I pray that you would remind them of this, your provision, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help those who walk in fear to walk in joy and confidence and gladness because Jesus Christ is our advocate who speaks in our defense before the throne. Fill us with joy because of that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.